Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Addictive Pod. Have you ever wondered if your addiction or the addiction of someone you care about might be because of genetics? If diabetes runs in the family, you might have a higher chance of developing diabetes. So could it be the same with addiction? Today, my guest answers this question with a definitive yes. There is a genetic component to addiction. We talk about how the genetic test works, how it can remove stigma and help someone to recover, process addictions, and lots more. Please join me in welcoming my guest. She has a postgrad from Harvard Medical School, a diploma in addiction and compulsive disorders. She's a certified addictionologist, a TEDx speaker, author, the founder of Wired for Addiction and the Neurotransmitter Reset Program, Dr. Evelyn Higgins. Dr. Evelyn, welcome to the Addictive Pod. It's so good to meet you. Likewise, Adrian. My pleasure for being here. Thank you. I'm really excited to have you on the show. I've never spoken to um, not only a doctor, but also someone who is an expert in addictions and an expert in the the genetic component of addictions. So that's going to be a really interesting episode for this show. It's something that it's a topic that hasn't come up so far. Right. There's not a lot of conversation in the area because it's not really been explored. I mean, really, it hasn't. In, in this area of addiction, we are so archaic in our thinking. And a lot of that is because we still have that moral flaw wrapped around it. There's still a stigma wrapped around it. And even within healthcare, there's an inequity because of that. You know, we've used technology to advance so many other areas of healthcare. Yet in this area, mm. we're like, well, you got yourself here. You can get yourself out. So there's more focus put into cancer research, into diabetes, other more medical issues. Absolutely. Even the example of diabetes um, in my TED talk, I, I use that example because I said, you know, if somebody has diabetes, we don't say, you know, why are you so weak to them? Just, just don't right. eat that. You know, but with addiction, we think it's okay, and that's the mentality still. We haven't brought science into it. What started you on this path? So I'm really curious, even before before addictions, before anything, what, what motivated you to become a doctor, to study medicine? Tell me about that journey. So I practiced in um, pain management and disability area, and um, what got me into that actually was a pretty severe car accident that I was in myself. And oh, wow. realized that it was kind of my body healing itself. And oftentimes, you know, that's depending on what happens in the nature of the trauma of the injury, that's what goes on. So started studying um, how that all happened within the body. Before that, I was in college to be an oceanographer. And that just kind of segued wow. me. Yeah. So 35 years ago, practicing in the area of pain management and disability and the mentality, first I was in a, um, a rural area and the mentality was try this, try that, you know, see if this works, double it, half it. If not, we'll move on to this one. And I was seeing people become dependent somewhat. And that mentality didn't work. It was like throwing a dart, hoping we it lands on the board. And then 20 years after that, I'm practicing in an urban area, yet it's the same exact model. 20 years later, try this, try that, half it, double it. We'll see if this works. And I'm seeing people move from dependent to addiction level. That was mm -hmm. my professional aspect. My personal aspect was that I married an alcoholic. And a man actually who had several addictions. And we had a child together. 
a year after my daughter was born, we found out that he was adopted. Now I needed answers. What's this health history? You know, at least in, in a family um, that is all of the same biological origin, you can see people, you can see behaviors, you can see, okay, I see uncle so-and-so, I see, you know, grandpa, I see these right, different things right. and didn't have any of that information. Um, I, he was very erratic. One day he would be one way, another day he'd be another day. You're always on eggshells. You don't know who's going to show up. So I'm seeing this behavior and I'm now like, okay, I need a lot more answers. I also need to know as much as I can know about the science of this. So that started my journey into the addiction space some 30, 30 30-ish, 32, initially 35, started with a um, certified addiction professional program, 32 years and then kept moving forward through that to become a diplomate and the highest degrees that you can have in addictionology. But that was my journey, both personal and professional. Got it. Got it. And um, I'm curious with this experience of um, living with your husband, are you still married to your husband? Is this the. No, we divorced or, and or he has since there? passed away. He died early in his. In, oh, I'm at sorry 42. to hear. Oh, I'm sorry yeah. to hear. From, from the disease? Um, complications of the disease. Mm-hmm. Were you able to get any of those answers that you were looking for for your husband, or was no. it, um, it was it much? Okay. Apparently, yeah. it was the big family secret that I was mm-hmm. the only one who <laughs> didn't know about the secret, which is which is bizarre because you know if you adopt somebody, that's a beautiful thing to do, right? Yeah. And it, yeah. and it should really be revered, but it was just the opposite, and and so kind of like doubled mm. down on let's keep this secret instead of no, this is the opportunity to bring it to the table. Mm. Mm-hmm. So there was that desire to understand what were his parents like, what were his family like, what what might have been some of the things that contributed to exactly. his developing of an addiction, exactly. right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. What um, what eventually led you to creating Wired for Addiction, creating the neurotransmitter reset? How did you um, how did you start to develop that? Was it something that was like naturally came from your studies, or did you have to also meet other people in the field of genetic research and uh, and technology? Sure. So in the beginning of it, we've been doing it sixteen years in R and D of what we do. But in the beginning, it was me and my clinical practice and. Um, we needed so many answers. We were just leaving Mm -hmm. people hanging out on a limb by themselves and seeing so much more of this coming to light. To me, what we were doing didn't make sense. You know, had we been getting results, I would have never been here talking to you, Adrian. There would be no reason why we'd be having a conversation about anything that I wound up doing because it would have already been there. There wouldn't be a need Mm -hmm. to, to research in this area. So as we started initially, the only thing that was available to be measurable was the neurotransmitters and the hormones, which is part of what we look at. The other parts of the 85 biomarkers that we look at are uh, genetic single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs. And the technology to look at those only became available tail end of 2014, beginning of 2015. And even one of the things that we look at um, in the area of autophagy, which is kind of like the garbage man of your cells, we've got to collect all the debris and remove it. One of the areas that we look at 
we've known about that autophagy since the 1800s, but how it interacts intracellularly, it was only 2017 that a Japanese physician won the Nobel Prize for. So this is mm. really, you know, new information. And then we have um, neuroscientists and, and PhDs in our academic part of it that are part of what we do on our advisory board. So it's, it's a large compilation of a lot of different work that just kept on escalating to where we are today. Then during COVID, you know, we, everything kind of stopped and the numbers just escalated from mental mm. health. And we're still looking at that now. The addiction numbers, yeah, the suicide addiction rates. addiction numbers. Yeah. Yep. And we're going to continue looking at that for years to follow because of people's mental health state. And the mental health state, you know, so often an addiction is from a diagnosed condition not being treated properly, an undiagnosed mm. condition or a trauma and or a combination of all of those so there's a mental health underlying tone before mm -hmm. we get to the addiction. And in the addiction space, it's like, here's the addiction. And those that work in the co-occurring disorders are like um, nirvana. Of, wow, you figured out that there's something else going on here too. There has to be. No one would be reaching for something outside of themselves to bring it in to change their resting state. And that's what we're doing in the addiction they're self-medicating, exactly. right? They're, they're not going to a doctor. Exactly. They're going to a friend or to someone that is like, hey, try this. This is going to make you feel right. better. And, and, and the self-medication, yeah. self-medicating makes sense in the beginning. You're, you're in yeah. pain. You're suffering. You find whatever it is that makes you initially feel good. And yeah. it works yeah. until it doesn't work. Then that becomes your problem. Yeah. Why does it stop working? This is something... Um, I, I love having a doctor on the show. I can ask, I can ask you sort of the scientific like mechanisms behind sure. addiction. Like, why does it stop working? Let's say someone's taking uh, Percocets, mm -hmm. right? They're taking pain meds. Feels great. It's working really well. It's numbing out the pain. It's they're able to sort of um, function and not worry about uh, their underlying condition or anything else. And that goes three months, six months, what have you. Why doesn't that work anymore? Why is there a uh, a change in the um, experience of taking a drug. So in the uh, biomarkers that we look at, those genetic SNPs, we can actually um, identify that, yes, this, pro this person has a predisposition towards addiction. So we know that that is going to turn out in a bad way, mm. right? And mm. in perfect world, this would be something that people do before you get to that situation. Right. Before they start taking right, right, right. you would yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Whoa, here, here yeah, you go. Yeah. Red flag. Like when I'm talking to yeah. kids, I'll be like, you know, do this panel and I'll say, so you're in an age now where, you know, after school, your buddy's going to say, hey, Adrian, I have a good idea. You know, let's go do this, blah, blah, blah. And yeah. kids are going to do that. You're going to be the kid that tries it and the next day is like, whoa, let's do this again. And your other buddy's like, no, we're mm. cool. We're going to, we're moving on to, you know, we're going to do this today. We're going to go do that. And you're like, no, 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 I want to, I want to, I want to do that because you've already experienced that this feels good for you. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about the biomarkers. So I am conscious of um, 
the audience's uh, patience with or understanding yeah, of scientific yeah, yeah. terms. I myself have a bachelor's of science, but it's been a while. And so let's let's try and make it like a fifth grade sure, level sure, sure. understanding. How do biomarkers work? How do they um, uh, how do they sort of signal that somebody might have a propensity towards being more obsessed with that drug or being more attached to it versus somebody who has a more normal reaction? Right. Okay. So you're born with your DNA. Here's your cards. Play it out. Right. Yeah. We may not see behaviors in someone, so like someone with an addiction. Say their their mom says to me, you know, I didn't see anything. He's nineteen years old. For the first eighteen years, I didn't see anything. Like because those same hmm. environmental stressors weren't there for that individual. So that's the whole study of epigenetics, which is probably right. the most exciting science that we've had in a really long it's time. Fascinating. fascinating. So yeah. like the, that's always been your son's DNA. That's always been what he mm. had to work with. But now going to college, having these new experiences in his environment, the stress that he was under in his body created the, the expression of those genes to turn on. It's the expression of the gene that now is creating the behavior mm. and in play. So you didn't. Would you, would your test, sorry, sorry to interrupt just while I have this thought, would, would your test be picking up, um, when the gene is expressed in that later context, or would it even pick it up earlier and say, Hey, you have this, um, uh, gene that's not expressed yet, but it may be expressed later on. Is right. That... So it would be at the initial testing of here, here's okay. the, here's your genes. This could be expressed at some point. So you need to be careful okay, well, about the choices that you make, you know, and, yeah. and we all, right. We all have that to me. That's you're armed with the information of your physiology. You have the ability to make better choices for yourself. It's still mm -hmm. a choice, right? Mm -hmm. But we have that ability. You know, it, it's, it's today we talk about because of how much has been done in neuroscience and addiction, like, well, in your family, you have a propensity towards cancers or cardiovascular disease. You need to be hypervigilant. You need to create good lifestyle habits, that kind of thing. And that's easy, normal conversation. Somehow when we get to the addiction right. part, we need to change all that. Like that doesn't exist. <laughs> like It doesn't make sense. It yeah. doesn't make sense. Yeah. What are some of the um, what are some of the environmental factors that uh, that bring out these expressions that that bring out this epigenetic play? You mentioned sort of being in college, stress. Right. Um, what are some of the factors that you see as really big indicators that something might be going so on? So we're all different of how we handle stress and our environments in which we live, but anything that could create anxiety in an individual or depression or 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 OCD, or any of those kind of um, experiences. And it doesn't mean the same, it, the, that it's the same for everybody. You know, maybe the pressure cooker, someone can handle more than the other person. But it's in knowing what you have to deal with, and where what you need to be careful of. Mm -hmm. I'm really curious about... Um, the samples that you may have seen in your uh, in your clinic, or um, samples of people who don't have propensities, like are there? Does that ever? What are the what are the rates of that? Like, are there uh, samples that you take where you just say, "Oh, this person actually doesn't have a propensity to addiction; they don't have any family history of mm -hmm. that." Sure. Or is it? Is it? Yeah. 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 Does yeah. That, does yeah. That sure. Often? Sure. Um, you know, they 
it's not always that you see the the same biomarkers because we all have different, um, we're all made up differently, right? Seven and a half billion mm. people in the world, seven and a half billion DNA, yet yet the, the part where it's problematic is we treat everybody as if they all have the same DNA, mm. you know? But mm. yeah, yeah, you, we can see people that don't have a propensity for that, um, but they may have... Um, high inflammatory markers, like maybe they suffer anxiety and depression, they have a lot of inflammatory mm. markers, so that neuroinflammation becomes problematic for that individual. I'm also super fascinated about process addictions. Mm -hmm. I saw that yep. on your, that that's an area that you have a lot of research and mm -hmm. a lot of uh, knowledge in. And it's something that I mean, talk about uh, new areas, sure. right? Like sex addiction, eating disorders. We don't, we don't have a lot of research about these things. I think alcohol use would probably be the most mm -hmm. researched. Mm -hmm. um, what can you tell me about process addictions and the biomarkers for those? So, biomarkers really are are the same. It's they're the mm -hmm. same. Wow. It's what comes into play in that individual's life that is self medicating for them. Um, mm. example, talking to somebody yesterday started with pornography at 13, that became his thing. Um, and then the advent of social media and all the other ways to involve yourself in someone's life that can become problematic really fast. Mm. And most of the people that we talk to do have families and sometimes the families know, sometimes the families don't know. But there's so many other opportunities within process addictions because they don't have that same look. Right. right. You can you can keep them secret. Right. Right. A yeah. gentleman talked to the other day uh, after 43 years of sex addiction, felt like he had this weight on him, and decided to talk to his wife about it. She had no idea. Wow. 43 years had no idea because yeah. we don't see you coming in the door, falling over. We don't smell something mm. on you. We don't see that erratic behavior necessarily. Gamblers, um, oftentimes people don't know until, oops, we're going to lose a house. You right. know, the car is being towed away. Um, people yeah. don't know those process addictions oftentimes, but just as problematic. Mm. That's fascinating that it's the same biomarkers. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's the it's the same propensity to basically start using some type of external right. uh, substance or behavior to to cope right. and to and to become strongly attached to that. That's sort of the same pro the same um, mechanism, right? I guess. And then that's that self medicating and whoops, this feels good, so it becomes your go to to feel good. Mm. So that's what you've got to get people to understand. If you don't feel good and you're reaching outside of yourself for something, we've got to figure out what's going on within you that makes you mm -hmm. need to self-medicate and go outside of yourself. If your resting place isn't okay, why is that? I, I don't know if this is, um, I don't know what the stats are around this, but it does seem that addictions run in the family and similar addictions run in the family, right? If someone is an alcoholic, it's more likely that their children will be alcoholics. Um, is that more about learned behavior and modeled behavior than it is about the biomarkers? Because if what you're saying is true, right, right the biomarkers just are this general propensity right, for addiction. Right. So it becomes what they see in the home or the lifestyle of the family. 
And, you know, it's if, if you grew up, let's say, in an alcoholic family and, and every day you saw mom and dad drinking and every holiday right. the family, you know, wound up with somebody not able to speak and walk, leaving the family party and perhaps an argument or a fight over here and you grow mm. up in that and you think that's normal, you're thinking the whole world operates that way. You may get outside for the first time and say, wow, every family, this isn't the, the holiday, right? Mm. So it's that learned behavior too. And the earlier in your life mm. you learn the, that behavior, the more it's going to be your go-to, the more it's going to be your pacifying mechanism. Interesting. So there's no... Um there's no specific genetic propensity to like a sensitivity towards alcohol, let's say, as far as we know. Right. There's no gene for alcohol. There's no gene for opioids. There's no gene for gambling. It's addiction blanket. That's fascinating. Yep. That's fascinating. I yep. had no idea. Yep. So that's um, why the, the, the complexity of the disease of addiction, it, there's so many layers. It's a biopsychosocial disease, right? So we have mm -hmm. the bio in our physiology. The psychosocial is all the things that we're just talking about. What's the home that you grew up in? What's the environment that you are in? What's the norm there? And you have mm -hmm. to dissect through all of those layers. But until now, we haven't looked at that physiology. When we said it was a biopsychosocial model, the bio was, well, you know, make sure that you sleep eight to nine hours, make sure that you're hydrated, that you're eating good foods, you know, all those kind of basic lifestyle sure. choices. But we weren't addressing physiology. And oftentimes we weren't addressing what's the undertone here? There a co-occurring disorder or is there anxiety? Or is there depression? Or is there ADHD? So many, mm. so many people that find themselves drinking. It's to calm down that mind that just won't slow down. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I'm also very curious about the treatment plans. So let's say you have somebody who takes the test, right? They mm -hmm. find out they have a propensity and they already are in some stage of active addiction or in an attachment to a substance. How do, how does the personalized, um, uh, panel, how does that, how does that sort of inform a personalized treatment plan? Sure. For an individual? Sure. So after we get back those labs, those 85 biomarkers, we look at all of those biochemical pathways. And if there's an area that needs support, then we look at where within that. So we can come up with dosing, what needs support, identify it. And then we work with someone if they want treatment with us over a six month period of time based on that lab. Some, some of the ways the biomarker evaluation report is used other than some individual who comes directly and wanting treatment is with another practitioner, with a physician who this isn't their specialty. They have their patient get it. Um, mm -hmm. We work within the criminal justice system. Um, even people that are incarcerated, we've, we've treated so wow. there's, there's many ways in which it can be used, but we work with someone over a six-month period of time, and that's all identified based on their individual labs. Got it. Um, and what's your experience been like working? I mean, you've been, I think it's been like 13, 14 years with, uh, with Wired for Addiction. Is that right? Yep, 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 yep. 
16 years in R&D. 16 yeah. years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. So what's that? What have you learned over that 16 years? What's the experience been sort of with the treatment plans and with the outcomes for some of these individuals? Yeah, fascinating. Um, first off, the, the outcomes to see someone's life change so greatly is, is amazing. Um, mm. To talk to someone, you know, say, okay, so how's everything been going since the last time we met? They're into their protocol for a couple months now. They're like, it's amazing. I have no desire to go out and drink. I said, so how you handle what made you used to stop your job and say, Mm -hmm. it's time for me to go get a beer because I am frustrated in this moment and I'm done. It's like, I don't even think about it anymore. Like that's amazing. That's amazing because when your physiology is balanced, that's exactly what should be happening. Um, some people actually, when we go over the labs, there's, uh, very emotional. Some people cry because Mm. all of a sudden it's like, this isn't me wanting to be this way. This makes sense. When, when you're looking at exactly who you are objectively for the first time, like you could, you could tell me any kind of stories of let's say, let's play stump, stump the doctor, right? At the end, I'm going to say clinical correlation, behavior, blah, 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 this, this, and this. And you're like, whoa, whoa, that's exactly mm. how I feel. And I'm saying this in, in quotes of oftentimes people are like, I'm not crazy. Mm. Imagine the emotional pressure that is now off of you. Mm-hmm. You're not crazy. We're identifying where we need to support something that's not working the way it should. Hmm. And then family members all of a sudden are like, wow, this makes sense. I get it. And there's support there. That, that's key. Wow. You know, if someone's been trying for decades, I can't tell you how many times we see somebody who comes in that's been on SSRI drugs or antidepressants and for decades. And their serotonin is hanging on by a thread. I'm like, first off, that drug didn't work for you, did nothing for the past 15 years, other than have to process it through your bladder, your kidneys, your liver, did nothing good for you. Um, That was never going to be the drug that worked for you because there was nothing diagnostic ever done to arrive at that. You were based on vocabulary. What if you and I, Adrian, have two different sets of what that word means? What's the definition? Mm. To me, it means this. To somebody else, it means that. And then you're handed a piece of paper here. This is what's going to make you feel better. That doesn't make you feel better. And you're going on and on. You start to believe you're just, you just don't want to be any better. This is all on you. It's based off of a story as opposed to based off of something biological. Correct. Yeah. 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 So you just think, I'm not wanting to be better. I want to show up in the world as this individual. That's not the case. I mean, there's so much that's like, a for the first time, this makes sense. Mm. Are you familiar with, uh, oh, I'm sure you're familiar. This is a stupid question. But uh, with AA and the big book and sort sure. of Dr. Silkworth, mm-hmm. uh, it's just so interesting. It's, it's almost 100 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. They're writing this book. And Dr. Right. Silkworth comes up with the idea of like the allergy. The allergy. It's this analogy. Right. They have right. no idea what's right. going on. But they're right. like, oh, it's an allergy to alcohol. Right. And it's, it's almost an attempt to... It, it it turns alcoholism into a, a medical illness so mm-hmm. that someone can have that experience of being like, oh, like, thank God there's there's something physically wrong with me. Right. Um, and now almost 100 years later, right, we're finally 
understanding, yeah, you know what, there are these biomarkers, there right. are, there is this propensity towards an addiction and right. it's, it's in your body and it's something that you're born with as well. Yeah. So, so fascinating. Yeah. So you see like Dr. Silkworth's work, it's like an addiction, I mean, a, an allergy wasn't for that time, it was probably the best label yeah. to put on it, yeah. right? Because you saw that person totally change and react yeah. totally differently with alcohol. You know, you're standing there with half a dozen of your buddies and one guy after two drinks is just, whoa, who are you? All your other yeah. buddies are still the same. This one guy becomes the new kid in the block and, and he's totally different. Right. Yeah. So the best way at that time was to say there's an allergy because this creates a reaction so different than what that normal resting rate is for that person. But, you know, you look at it, Adrian, and here's where the inequity is. It took us almost 100 years to apply science to this back to the stigma, mm. back right. to the moral flaw in that individual. It's you got right. yourself here. You can get yourself out of here. You know, everything. We, somebody has a heart attack. We wouldn't say, you know, I don't agree with you on that. <laughs> I, I don't think that's how we should do this. Yeah. You know, yeah. meanwhile, the person's dying. Is it really any different with an addiction? No. I just, I just had someone on the show the other day. Um, the stigma is so dangerous because when someone thinks it's a moral failing, right, they don't want to look, they don't want to seek help right. because it's so, it's too shameful, right? right? It's like, oh, I don't want anyone to know that I'm struggling. I don't want anyone right. to see me going through this. I don't even want to admit I have a problem because that would mean I'm a moral failure. Right. And, it, yep. and so they continue to suffer. They continue to drink or abuse the substance. And yep. the work that you do, I, it's amazing that people are having this experience, like the relief that it can bring them to just see that, oh my God, there's actually something physically wrong with me. Exactly. Exactly. And, and start handling it like we would any other disease or yeah. condition. And here we have to treat it and we have to teach you what it's all about. Like it, it, with diabetes example, again, you know, what, besides your, your protocol for your diabetes, then you have to go to the education class for diabetes, you know, learn about foods right. and how they affect you. Well, we should be doing all of those same things, yet we don't. Mm -hmm. and, and we wonder why our numbers are escalating. You know, mm -hmm. definition of insanity. We're doing the same thing over and over again, yet expecting a different result. Why are the numbers escalating? I know this is like we could we could have a whole uh, episode on this one topic, but uh, we we were talking about COVID a little bit. We were talking right. about how the addiction rates are rising. Right, right. Um, how do you how do you make sense of it? I mean, it's it seems to be getting out of control. Right. So COVID really played into people's mm. anxiety, people's depression. If people already had that to begin with, it was exacerbated. For people that didn't, they actually, a lot of them wound up like, I've never felt like an anxious person. I've never felt mm. like a depressed person. And now I do. So COVID has really, really um, brought to light all of these things, the suicide, the addiction, the mental health um, and, and typically after any type of pandemic, we're looking at a three to five year time period of being in that same mm. place until people start climbing out. And we're seeing that now. I mean, you know, the worst thing to do is turn on the news and hear all these horror stories of people just losing their minds on another individual. And, you know, I saw two stories this week and I don't even watch the news because of that. People told me 
of um, upstate New York, Saratoga, New York, girl and I think three of her buddies in a car on a Saturday night looking for a friend's house, pull into the driveway. They're in the wrong driveway. Don't even get out of the car. And guy shoots and kills. Oh, my God. But you're seeing this type of pensive, pensive behavior. And then the political arena, of course, just exacerbated things as well. Mm. Um, But we're Mm. at this time. You know, we got here. We're here. And we have to really start taking this serious and treat people. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm really curious about... um, the like what does the treatment look like you know you you see somebody come into your clinic you you take the uh the sample you understand the biomarkers you present that to them right it helps reduce their stigma Mm -hmm. it helps reduce shame around uh their illness um can you tell me a little bit about what the treatment process looks like and what the actual uh, solution can be for someone we also work with people remotely we have patients literally all over the globe so Mm. we can drop ship our lab kits to them anywhere, which also really makes it easier for people to be able to stay in their home, stay in their family, stay in their job, and start with, we do the lab tests, we get that information back, we do a really extensive intake with an individual, we want to know everything that got you to Mm. the point of you finally contacting us. Mm -hmm. Um, We get that back some two plus weeks later, we create what we call a biomarker evaluation report, very lengthy. It's going to be a couple of hours for that first appointment because we're going over each biomarker, what that means, because I want everybody that we're working with to understand what's going Mm. on within them. Because if you get that theory part, all of a sudden it's like, whoa, okay, this makes sense. This is starting to equate. And you start making better decisions even on your own as a result Mm. of understanding what's going on. So create that protocol based on that individual's labs, could be nutraceuticals, pharmaceuticals, combination of both, usually. Nutraceuticals are like diet or what is that? Uh, Nutraceuticals being um, pharmaceutical grade supplements. Oh, I see. see. Not just over the counter stuff, right? Not just over the counter, but pharmaceutical grade, um, pharmaceuticals, combination of both. What do we need to do to support this pathway? You know, if, if you look at, there's not a single cell in our body made up of a pharmaceutical, yet that's the first go-to. I'm not anti-pharmaceutical. It's just, mm. it's just a mentality that we've been taught of to fix it, we have to do this. Well, is that really right? Because I'm looking at the biochemical pathways. And in the pathway of going from serotonin to melatonin, there's not any Elevil, there's not any Zoloft, there's not anything in there. So we look at all of it. We look at the Mm. pathways, what do we need Mm -hmm. to support there? And then so it it could be pharmaceuticals, nutraceuticals, and or a combination of both. Um, And then we work with an individual over a six month period of time to be sure as we're moving through, everything is working the way it should. And as you start to become this new person, because your physiology has changed, you now start to make different decisions. Well, what what does that look like? You know, how would Mm -hmm. you have responded to this a month ago? How do you respond to it now? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and are you good with where you're going? So that's what it looks like over from beginning to end. 
Interesting. Interesting. Is there, um, because we talked about like the, uh, the social, like in the bio, uh, psychosocial, like mm-hmm. there's, there's definitely the social element and there's, um, stressors, right? Like uh, events, environmental effects that will sure. lead to this expression. Is that a conversation that you have in the clinic or is it more focused on the bio and on? No, um, no, no. It's a common, it's, it's what okay. we, we talk about as well. Um, we have clinicians, uh, that work in different specialty areas. So that's all a part of wow. what we're talking about. Yeah. It's, it's the whole, what got you here and what's right. going to, okay. what's going to make the changes. Um, okay. it's not so counseling just, around sure. like yeah. environmental yeah. factors around situ- life situations, right. Or, or something's coming up. Okay. Yeah. What's our plan? You know, it, it's, it. what, what are we going to do? And, and being with this new behavior that you knew ha- that you now have, how do you see yourself going into that environment? How do you see that playing out? Do we know what the um, what the rates are, like the, the incident rates in the population of people with a propensity to addiction? Is that something we, we have a, a rough understanding of? Or is it too hard to estimate? Too hard to estimate, really. Okay. Um, and, and the... The work hasn't been done there yet on yeah. the academic university level. Um, we're starting that conversation, which is wonderful. We've had a really mm-hmm. major insurance carrier come to us to do a pilot program because they're like, this is going to work. We want to show the efficacy of this. So mm. it will be supported throughout insurance. We've had major universities. In fact, one um, wants to do a pilot with sex addiction because there's so little studied in that area. And right. there's like zero as far as treatment goes, you know, don't yeah. do it. Well, that would be nobody'd <laughs> ever have a problem anywhere. Right. Yeah. So this is starting that conversation. That's really going to further this. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm really excited to see what comes out of this research and what can come out of um, just more of a, a movement towards seeing addiction as a biological illness or as a, as a physical illness, as well as, sort of social and, and psychological issues. Absolutely. Um, I, my training is more in the psychological side of things. Mm-hmm. And and that's my interest in, in becoming a therapist. But mm-hmm. it's, um, it, it, it's intu- it intuitively makes sense that there is um, a biological component, that these things are hereditary, right. and that an understanding of your biological makeup can help somebody to better understand themselves, better understand their issue. Absolutely. And when we're working with someone, they'll say, well, should I continue seeing my therapist? Absolutely. You should, you know, this Mm, is, you're, mm. you're now changing at such a fast rate. You need to be having those regular conversations that you've always had with your therapist and and you're, you're creating somebody who thinks and acts very different. Hmm. Well, it's been amazing having you on the show. I really appreciate your time and I really appreciate you answering my my uh, scattered questions about this. I feel like I'm like a kid in the candy shop trying to like <laughs> pick out all the little all the little facts I can from uh, the most educated person I've had on the show so far. Well, it's my pleasure, Adrian, and you know, thank you for the work that you do because you're you're being the voice that's putting this out there to the public to say, "Hey, we've got to start looking at this differently if we want to end up with a different place for this disease and and the work that you do is really important and i thank you and for your therapy work as well 
Thanks so much for saying that. And thanks for sure. being on the show. I'll have to I'll have to have you on again soon with a uh, hundred more questions <laughs> about the science of addiction. My pleasure. Thanks, Adrian. Thank you everyone so much for listening to this episode of the Addictive Pod. If you enjoyed hearing about Dr. Higgins Wired for Addiction, be sure to check out her website. It is drhiggins.com. Doctor spelt out with all the letters. I'm going to post that in the description. I'm also going to post a link to the Wired for Addiction Instagram. And my Instagram is at Addictive Podcast. You can reach out to me there. DM me. Tell me what you thought about the episode. Tell me who you want on as a next guest or if you want to be a guest. And that's all for me this week. So until next, next Monday, remember, we recover together. <laughs>